And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Atlantic and Coastal, the Athletics ACC podcast. I'm Andy Bitter, your Virginia Tech football beat writer. Uh, joined, as always, in this offseason by Brendan Marks, our UNC Duke basketball writer. He's the one who brings all the basketball knowledge. I just kind of guide this thing, and, and he tells us how we're doing this thing. We're going to start to try to do these on Mondays. Uh, it's it's difficult to try to find a time during the week to do it. Mondays seem like a good day. It's before all the midweek games. You know, you can talk about the games over the, the weekend. That's exactly what we're going to do today. Uh, so, Brennan, let's get right to it from the weekend games. Uh, the big one, I think, uh, the result that uh, kind of shocking when you see it. Virginia just manhandles Clemson 85 to 50. Uh, you called Clemson. I have to bring this up. You called Clemson. You said they were the best team in the ACC last week. And clearly the Cavaliers listened to you when they said that they went out and won the game by 35 uh, it's time to pay the piper. What do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, you know, uh, as as I have already admitted, uh, I was wrong. <laughs> I was I was very very wrong. Uh, not that Tony Bennett ever needs bulletin board material, but clearly I supplied it because uh, oh my god, Virginia! I mean, this is um, I, I would venture to say that this is one of the most impressive offensive performances that a Tony Bennett coach team has had in years. I mean, and and obviously as uh, our our awesome Virginia writer Eamon Brennan sort of pointed out in his recap of the game. Uh, there were points in the game when Clemson was on track to win by, or sorry, there were points during the game when Virginia was on track to win by like even more than 35 points. So uh, I, I mean, it, it was a complete spanking. Um, and, and I think the thing that we didn't take into account, the thing that I didn't take into account, let me say, I, I will own that um, Virginia's offense does not look like Virginia's offense normally does. It is not normally this aesthetically pleasing. Um, you know, we can get into the numbers a little bit more, but but this is a new look sort of Cavaliers offense and the way that they've leaned into the three-point ball, the way that they've leaned into sharing the ball. Um, they're still doing it within the the like, you know, sluggish pace that they always play with, but um, some of the some of the impact transfers are really showing up for Tony Bennett's group and uh yeah, I mean, I don't know any other ways to say that I was wrong other than just to flatly admit it like that. <laughs> yeah, the, the numbers on this game were out, uh, just incredible. UVA, 15 three-pointers. They shot 60%. Uh, the, it was 20-3, 12 minutes in. I admit I was watching the football games, the football playoff games, uh, you know, in honor of Drew Brees and Tom Brady being the geriatric uh, matchup this week. I threw up my back this weekend. So I was just <laughs> sitting on the couch watching this the whole thing. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm going to watch. Uh, I'll watch a little bit of this game. And then like I didn't I didn't watch it from the start. And I, I look at the score is 20 to three. 
Yeah. And Clemson, Clemson had missed 13 straight shots. They'd gone 10 and a half minutes without a point. And I'm like, what's the point? A 17-point lead for Virginia might as well be a 50-point lead. Exactly. I mean, they're not coming back from that that kind of score. Uh, so I did not watch any of it and you know didn't really need to. This was the most decisive win for the Cavaliers against a ranked opponent ever. Uh, most points that a Tony Bennett team has scored in his 12 years as the coach. Sam Hauser had 14, four or five uh, from three-pointers. That was a season high for him. Uh, he has been north of 40% on his three-point shots throughout his career, all three years at Marquette before he got to Virginia. Uh, he's been under that. I think this shooting performance that he had this day got him to 37.5 this year. So he's pretty low coming in. Uh, this is a guy that we've talked about as player of the year candidate. Uh, if he starts to get going, uh, this becomes a very dangerous UVA team. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, so UVA's offense overall, you know, it's not just Hauser, but he is certainly, I think, the focal point and the epitome, really, of how their offense has changed. Because you look, and, and Virginia is attempting threes on almost 41% of their shots. Um, that those, those are, you know, championship numbers. Those are Kyle guy, Ty Jerome, Deandre Hunter era sort of numbers that that is not something that's typical for a UVA team. And as a result, I, I even went out of my way to make sure that I noted this list of teams. Virginia is 11th nationally now in adjusted offensive efficiency. That is better than Texas national championship contender FSU, which just absolutely did anything it wanted to against NC state. And for the most part, UNC over the weekend, we'll get to that. Um, it's better than Alabama, which uh, looks like it could be in the three point contest, the way that Nate Oates, team is playing better than Kansas. So Virginia's offense, when you put it into that sort of context, I think um, I really don't feel like it's getting enough national attention because it's Hauser. It's Trey Murphy. It's Jay Huff, the seven foot one center. You know, he's a shot blocker, but he's averaging almost three, three point or three, three point attempts a game now. So um, it, it is, it is shocking to see what's going on. Hauser, obviously to get back to your question, Andy, he's the guy who's sort of spearheading the whole campaign. Um, he's just so versatile. He's able to get off his shots relatively quickly. And the way that Virginia's offense sets him up, he, he basically has a setup man, all of his own in Kihei Clark. Their chemistry has been so impressive already this year. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think that in the grand scheme of things, I don't know if Hauser is going to continue to get the usage. If, if Virginia's other shooters shoot like this to get him to ACC player of the year territory, especially because as we've talked about before, Matthew Hurt, um, Justin Champagny, there's a couple of other really, really good contenders. Um, but yeah, if, if you're not mentioning his name in that award, you're, you're doing it wrong. And uh, after not doing so a week ago, it's time that we give Virginia their due. I think this Virginia style is always interesting because, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, I went to Wisconsin, so I follow Wisconsin basketball. And it's very boring and plodding like that. But when they have anything resembling an offense, and you think back to that 24-15 team that played for the title against Duke and lost in heartbreaking fashion, crushed me that they lost that game. Um uh, maybe that was 20. I can't remember. Maybe I got the year wrong on that. Whatever the year was that they played Duke in that, that title game, they had guys like Eric Decker, Frank Kaminsky, Nigel Hayes. They had some offensive weapons and they could score. I mean, they were really efficient offensively. They just would play at a slow pace. But I mean, they could score in the 80s if they needed to. I don't know if this is going to be common. Uh, with Virginia here, but the fact that they went out and did that in one of these games against uh, the number one defense in the country, 
uh, you know, on, on Ken Palm, I believe, going into this game. Uh, very, uh, bodes very well for Virginia. Uh, I mean, Virginia was the preseason pick to win the ACC. They're 5-0 and right now. You know, we, last week, we kind of questioned them a little bit because they had not played really anybody tough in the ACC. But, uh, you know, you look at their schedule so far, they lost a weird one to start the season against San Francisco. That was just a strange game. I even watched part of that game. It's just like, maybe that was just like, you know, opening game weirdness that's going on with that. Uh, Lost to Gonzaga. Uh, No shame in that necessarily. I know they got blown out, but Gonzaga's an awesome team. Uh, This seems to be like the Cavaliers are right where we sort of thought they were as the the class of the ACC. Do you feel that they are right now after this week? Yeah, I mean, after, I I think this was a statement of win as any team in the ACC has had all year. You know, this was the best ACC win of the season thus far. And when you look at the way that Virginia evolved over the latter half of last season, I I think you really are starting to get those vibes from this group as well. And and one guy who doesn't get enough credit is Kihei Clark. Um, You know, we talk about Sam Hauser. We talk about Jay Huff. um, We talk about Trey Murphy. You know, Morsell's been hot, hitting from three. Kihei Clark is still the guy who makes it all go. And and when he's playing at his best, which he did against Clemson, didn't have any turnovers, um, All he does is dribble around and make the right reads at the right moment and set his teammates up to succeed. And I think having a selfless guy like that to sort of operate this whole, you know, symphony of weapons that that Tony Bennett has assembled, it just makes Virginia a really difficult unit to stop because, because Clark is such a slippery operator as the lead guard. And and he's not normally what you think of, but um, over the end of last season, he really came into his own and Virginia followed. I think that same thing is going to happen this year. And yeah, um, if, if Virginia's offense keeps hitting at the sort of efficiency, you know, are they going to score 80 points a game? No, absolutely not. But if they can keep up this efficiency, then, then yeah, I, I see it really being a tough, it's going to be nearly impossible for anybody else to match what Virginia brings on both ends of the floor. Like we've said, um, there are teams that are great on one end of the ball, uh, you know, Clemson, I think obviously defensively had shown signs of that. Virginia Tech has shown signs of being great offensively. But um, again, what Virginia is doing right now is just sort of unmatched in the conference. And uh, personally, I, I feel a little bit relieved, a little bit uh, validated in having picked Virginia to win the ACC myself. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. What do we make of Clemson? Uh, I mean, this is a team that had 11 days between games. They had a COVID pause in there. I mean, could it be they were just rusty from that time off? I mean, I know this time of year you kind of get in a rhythm of playing all the time and you go that long without playing that might affect things a little hundred percent. And, and I, I mean, until Wednesday, Amir Sims tweets out like how great it was to finally be able to practice again until then. I, I don't think we were even sure that this game was going to happen. So yeah, you, you can't take that COVID scare and dismiss it. I mean, that certainly played a factor. You saw that with Syracuse earlier this year when they um, right before the start of the season, they'd been off for two weeks, came back and, and, you know, looked absolutely awful. So the COVID scares, the chemistry, the conditioning, you know, you forget how quickly some of these guys can fall out of shape just by not being in the gym every single day and doing what they're used to. Um, But at the same time, you know, some of Clemson's offensive inefficiencies really showed up. And and when Sims wasn't playing with that all ACC caliber guy, you know, I think he had one of his worst performances of not just this season, but his entire career against the Cavaliers. Um, Yeah. Everything else sort of fell apart after that. So it just really shows you how integral he is to Clemson's success. I'm still buying Clemson. I still think that the Tigers are a tournament team. I still think their defense is legit. I think they'll get back into uh, rhythm here now that they're a little bit further removed from the COVID break. But uh, certainly this, this, I think, notches Clemson down a little bit from being one of the contender contenders to someone who is still in that mix uh, trying to get a double buy in the ACC tournament. Well, Clemson has two road games this week. They're at Georgia Tech at Florida State. I think we'll kind of see what they're made of with those two games. UVA, NC State postponed on Wednesday. So UVA will have the week off until it plays Georgia Tech on the weekend. Uh, Probably a nice little break for Virginia there as well. Uh, The other big game from this weekend, this is one I watched in its entirety. Uh, I don't watch a whole lot of basketball games in their entirety. I was going to say, that's a a big thing for you. (laughs) I did watch this one in its entirety. Florida State beats UNC 82-75. to Uh, I have to say, I came out of this game kind of impressed with both teams, with how they played. I mean, Florida State won that game. No Scotty Barnes uh, had an ankle injury. Uh, MJ Walker left briefly when he rolled his ankle, and they still just kind of fended off UNC. Every time UNC got close, they get into one or two. I I don't even know. Did they ever take the lead in the second half? Not in the second second half, yeah. Uh, Yeah, every time that UNC made a little charge, Florida State had an answer. Uh, Walker had 21 points. Raquan Gray, I thought, was very good in that game. Kind of did a little bit of everything. Scored, defended, assisted, rebounded, everything. Uh, And yet, at the same time, I look at how UNC played, and I'm like, that's a team that could do something uh, this year, I think, if they if they get some of these pieces together. What was your big takeaway from that game? Yeah, I, I also kind of came away encouraged by both teams. Um, and I'm glad that you got to watch this as your your ACC game of the weekend full, Andy, because there, uh, there were certainly some others that were not as interesting. But yeah, I, I think on the UNC side, probably the biggest takeaway and what I wrote about after the game was um, Anthony Harris is back. This is the first time that Anthony Harris has played in a game for UNC since he tore his ACL December 30th last year, or 2019, excuse me, um, against Yale. So, so in December of last season, it'd been over a year since this guy had played. And 
really sort of a heartbreaking story. In high school, his senior season, uh, midway through, tears his left ACL. Works all through the summer, you know, doesn't get to finish up his high school career, comes into UNC, is still rehabbing, didn't get into games for UNC until December of 2019, comes in, and, and again, as bad as UNC was last season, he was sort of one of the bright spots. Um, played really well, and again, a win against UCLA in Las Vegas, looked great against Gonzaga, played okay against Yale, and then late in the Yale game last December, or two Decembers ago, um, goes down untouched, crumples to the ground, tore the other ACL and his other knee. And at the time, Roy Williams called that injury one of the most heartbreaking of any team, any injury that he's had in his career. So I think that really spoke to the sort of character and the energy that Anthony Harris brought. And you saw that on Saturday with him sort of making his debut again. Um, barely played 10 minutes, but had five points, took a charge, couple assists, no turnovers. Um, he, he looked like the sort of energy guy that UNC has been missing. And, and I think the biggest thing that he did was he didn't have a turnover. You mentioned how early in the game it looked like UNC, this is a team that could do something. It is. I agree with you, Andy, 100%. But only so long as the Tar Heels don't turn the ball over. They had three in the first 18 minutes and then ended up finishing with 14. So you got to keep up that pace of hanging on to the ball. But if that's the case, I think North Carolina, even in a loss, showed some, some encouraging signs. Yeah, UNC 3-3 three and three in the ACC right now, 8-5 and five overall. Uh, but I, I think there's something there. Just just watching that team, you just it's it's a load of talent. It just feels like it needs to come together uh, a little bit. Florida State, I gotta say, I just am always impressed with Florida State. I mean, just they are just so tall. They they seem to have a seven footer every year that makes an impact. Uh, Balza Kopravitsa, I think I'm saying that yeah, right. Yeah, Kopravitsa. I think Kopravitsa. He played outstanding in that game 10 points nine rebounds three blocks he was running the floor seven foot one guy from serbia who's a sophomore i mean i just thought that was impressive and then they have another guy who's a seven footer on that team too it's like man you're just constantly hit by seven footers on this team uh the fact that they played that way without scotty barnes uh so i mean he comes back into the mix it's just another six foot nine guy that's really good they, they don't miss free throws uh two games last week they were 37 of 38 on free throws. And I think the miss was like at the very end. I believe it was their, it might've been their last attempt of the two games that they missed. <laughs> yeah. 26 of 27. They shot 48% for the field, 50% from three pointers. I just think this is a dangerous team. Cause they, I mean, they're tall. They can defend. They can be problematic at a lot of different spots. They're going to rebound just based on their height. Uh, where does Florida state fit into this ACC mix? I think they're three and one now. Uh, but I feel like this is a team that, uh, you know, could give anybody problems, even Virginia. Absolutely. And and it's interesting that you mentioned Virginia because like Florida State, uh, both of those teams, I think, are, are typically known for their defense. They're, they're known for being tenacious and in Florida State's case, obviously being long and lanky and, and sort of able to disrupt passing lanes at will. Uh, right now, Florida State's offense is 13th in adjusted efficiency na nationally, and that's only behind Virginia and the ACC. So we're talking about these two teams that are always known for their defense, and this year – uh, you know, obviously this, this whole year has been so weird and wild with COVID and the interruptions and everything, but these are the two best offensive teams in the league right now. And I think obviously we saw what Florida state did against NC state. They're not going to be able to drop over a hundred every game, but doing so a second week in a row against such a big UNC front court, you know, this was strength on strength in this game. This is two teams that have a ton of size. Um, I think Florida state is the second biggest team in the country, just on average in terms of height, wingspan, all those sort of things. Um, 
but the yeah. Jay Billis attributes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but you know, being being able to put on a second performance like that in a row, being able to do so against the team that does match up well with you, given UNC's front court, and doing it without Scotty Barnes. Um, it's, it's hard to say that these are not the top two teams in the ACC at this point. And, and I think one reason, again, we love to talk about all the intangibles, the, the Jay Billis attributes with Florida State. MJ Walker's playing out of his mind. You know, he is, I think, you know, top 10 in the ACC in scoring right now, um, made his first three three-pointers against UNC, then obviously briefly went out. And when he went out, I mean, that's when UNC started to really make a little bit of a push. So he's becoming more and more essential to what Leonard Hamilton wants to do. Um, but on the whole, it, Florida State was a tough team last year. They lost Trent Forrest. They lost Devin Vassell. Losing those guys was never going to be easy. The fact that Leonard Hamilton already has this group back playing this well and in this early into January, uh, Florida State's as poised as anyone to make a run at the conference title. Florida State 3-1. and one. Second place team in the ACC, though, right now. At 5-1 and one are the Virginia Tech Hokies. Uh, you know, not the most... Uh, aesthetically a pleasing win against Wake Forest the other night, 64 to 60. My former colleague at the Roanoke Times, Randy King, would refer to that as a taffy pull. Uh, regular ACC taffy pull there, 64 to 60. Uh, you're not going to win many style points winning like that, but this was a win on the road for this team, which they hadn't done that this year. Uh, Virginia Tech is 5-1 and one in the ACC for the second time in its 17 years. Uh, in the conference. I think the impressive thing with how Virginia Tech went about this, Keve Aluma, Jalen Cohn combined to go for one for 10 from the field. They made one basket on the night. Those are the two guys that have sort of been their hottest scores either all season or recently with Cohn. Uh, they went four of 18 on three-pointers, 22%, and they still won this game. Uh, I don't know if you watched much of that. I tuned in for the, the end of it. Uh, Tyrese Radford was great in that game, 20 points. Uh, David Gasson scored 13 off the bench. Hunter Couture, I thought, played really great at the end. He made some plays, some shots. He's always playing great defense. Uh, I think the interesting thing with the Hokies with this one is they were able to win a game on the road like this without their best effort. And they got some contributions from guys that weren't necessarily always the, the highest scorers on this team. Yeah, I think that's definitely the biggest takeaway because, uh, and not to discredit Tyrese Radford, but Cone and Keve Aluma are, are clearly the guys who sort of make everything go offensively for Mike Young's team. Also, shout out SoCon forever. Uh, Mike Young and and Steve Forbes being able to reunite in the ACC, that's very cool. But uh, They had a nice little uh, elbow tap after the game, and uh, you can tell that they've coached against each other before. Yeah, they're, they're familiar with one another. But, um, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, the fact that Virginia Tech was able to do this, I mean, you have to take – you have to take it with a grain of salt, sort of, I think. You've got a team in Wake Forest that's clearly still rebuilding, still still clearly finding itself. Um, obviously, Forbes' guys are playing much harder than I would say Wake Forest players did for the previous regime, but still trying to make everything fit. It's not totally um, the way that he would like things to look right now. But at the same time, Tyrese Radford. I mean, Coach K said that he was the best player in the court when Virginia Tech played Duke, and again, he looked absolutely terrific. Um, the one other thing that I'd say is sort of a caveat and, and I can't keep saying it's a caveat because it keeps coming up, but this is against a team, Wake Forest, that doesn't have a really dominant interior post player. And, and you know, it doesn't really seem like there are a ton of those in the conference this year. I think a big part of that is, is lending itself to Virginia Tech having success because um, this style and Keve Aluma sort of serving as the primary rebounder, Tyrese Radford getting his, um, you know, from the perimeter spot. It's such an interesting formula, but it's working. And 
when you see these teams play, you know, when, when Virginia Tech has to play some of these bigger teams, when they play a Florida State, when they play North Carolina, maybe it's different. But for now, what Mike Young is doing, the way that they're getting boards, the way they're getting second chance points, and the way that their offense works, even without those two guys, um, it, it speaks to a level of viability, I think, that I wasn't sure existed in Blacksburg yet. But certainly it was an impressive win. Um, I really like Mike Young as a coach, and, and it's hard not to love what he's doing right now. Yeah, I, I'm going to say that when they play Florida State UNC this year, they cannot go four for 18 on three pointers. No, certainly not. <laughs> They're going to need to shoot a lot better to stay competitive in that game. Virginia Tech has coming up uh, versus BC at Syracuse at Notre Dame. Uh, those are all winnable games. I'm not going to say that you know you, this team's going to go on the road and automatically win those games just because I don't think that's quite where this team is at yet. But you you could very easily see a team that could be 8-1 going into a January 30th home game against Virginia, uh, which, I mean, that would be one of the biggest games in, in basketball in this state in a while, I feel like. I feel like these teams have met as ranked before, but maybe not quite uh, that high in the standings. So I'm kind of rooting for it to happen. I'm not rooting for a team, but I'm rooting to watch a big game like that. Right. In the state. I think that'd be great. I mean, that would be that, that for, for our guests. I mean, that sounds like it would be for first place in the ACC. No, I mean, very well. It could be. It could be. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, hopefully that happens. I like, I, like watching, <laughs> I like watching big games locally here. This is uh, this is one of those times when you wish that the Castle Coliseum was able to be as packed. Because think about what the atmosphere would be for that one. It would just oh, it, but that place is a it's a strange stadium. It's not like the nicest arena, but like when it's full it's, and rocking, it, gets it is a going. very good. It can be a very good home court advantage. All right, we are 22 minutes into this. The pit disrespect needs to stop. <laughs> We did not even mention them last week on the podcast. That's my fault. As the guy who's running the podcast, that's my fault. I'm supposed to tee you up and, and set you there. In my defense, Pitt had not played in a while. They had a couple of postponements. Uh, we're going to talk about Pitt now. Pitt beat Syracuse 96-76. to 76. Just clobbered them. Uh, they sweep uh, Syracuse on the season. They've beaten them twice. The, the game a couple of 10 days ago was 63-60, to 60, and this one was 96-76. to 76. A uh, little bit different uh, outcome. I think a big reason for that was the return of Justin Champagny for Pitt. Uh, interior guy goes 24 and 16 in his return after missing a month with a knee injury. Uh, a couple other guys, Xavier Johnson, 23 points, Ithiel Horton, 20 points. But Champagny was the big story out of this game. Uh, he is an exceptional player, uh, you know, ACC player of the year caliber type player. Uh, what does his return mean for Pitt? And do we need to start paying a bit more attention to Pitt? Also? As as long as Justin Champagny is on the court, yes, we we need to stop disrespecting Pitt. He is he is single handedly that good. And and the reason why I was a little hesitant earlier to to say that Sam Hauser is going to be ACC Player of the Year is because right now Justin Champagny, it's hard not to give him your vote, even considering the time he's missed. I mean, the dude is just so dominant as a scorer. He's so dominant on the boards, and and. Pitt's set up a little bit that way. You know, Capel is giving him the green light for a reason. Um, but being able to do that, your first game back, Syracuse allowed, what, 64 points in the second half? I mean, that's that's embarrassing. That's absurd. So, uh, yeah, as long as Champagne's in the fold, uh, we got to pay attention to this Pitt team. Um, I, I think the other thing that's probably not getting enough credit, you know, Xavier Johnson's playing better. Tony's playing better. Um, and when all of those guys are hitting, you know, Pitt had four guys hit 18 points against Syracuse. That's not going to be sustainable every single game. But um, Champagne attracts so much defensive attention that it frees things up for those other guys. And if Xavier Johnson and Tony can get going a little bit, then, then yeah, you know, this is a, this is sort of a secretly sneaky pit team. 
interesting game this week. They host Duke on Wednesday. Uh, it, I mean, it's interesting for a couple of reasons, just because of the matchup itself, but obviously Jeff Capel as well. Uh, now in his third year at Pitt, first year 3-15 and 15 in the ACC, tied for 14th. Last year 6-14, and 14, tied for 13th. This year, all of a sudden looking like a little something going here. Uh, I have not paid very much close attention to Pitt, uh, certainly not since Kevin Stallings bottomed out that program and, and is like... <laughs> probably the worst hire in ACC history. I would say definitely so. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think Bobby Petrino maybe raises you a glass or two, but yeah, Stalling. basketball, basketball edition, worst hire. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, not I, even close. I'm sure if David Teal were here, he'd have some guy from a while ago that we're completely forgetting about, but recent edition, Kevin Stallings, terrible hire. Uh, Jeff Capel, what he's done a pretty good job. It seems like so far getting this thing turned around. He has. And, and he had think has done better. Kate, let's get this out of the way first. Cable's a great coach. You know, in, in terms of strictly being an X's and O's guys, in terms of being a recruiter, um, obviously he filled that role at Duke for so many years and, and did such a great job in Durham. Um, he's doing all of that. You know, that's there. He's dealt with some other things. You know, he's had, he's had guys leaving. He's had guys thinking about transferring. It's been a little bit in flux. Um, they haven't always played up to their potential, but I think this is sort of a chance for Pitt to make a statement game against Duke. And, and it's a statement game for Capel too. You know, K assistants do not always fare well against K. And by not always, I mean, rarely, um, they, they rarely succeed against Mike. And so I think this is a chance though, where the combination of, of players that Capel has the momentum that they're riding after this sort of a beatdown, the fact that Duke hasn't played in a week and the fact that Jalen Johnson, you know, sort of the all lottery forward that he's expected to be, we don't know how impactful he's going to be. All these things are coming together and it's sort of a perfect storm for Pitt to be able to make a statement and really to say, you know, Hey, we are not still in that lower class of the ACC. You know, we are fighting to be in that sort of meaty middle chunk. Um, and that may not sound like a lot, but for a team like Pitt that, like you said, did bottom out, that's a huge, huge statement. And for Champagny, I think, um, I think he matches up really well with what Duke is going to want to do. I think that he's someone who uh, on the perimeter, he's going to be able to get boards. He's going to be able to get his looks. I would not at all be surprised if Duke tries to get him in foul trouble and just throw bodies at him. But um, I, I really like Jeff Capel as a coach. I really like Champagny as a player. I like Tony and Xavier Johnson too. They didn't play as well last season as they needed to. And uh, now that they're picking it back up, you're sort of seeing the potential of what this group can be on its best nights. Coach K sort of has that Nick Saban, Bill Belichick thing against former assistants where like he teaches them well enough to go get their, their own job somewhere, but not good enough to actually beat them. Right. So, <laughs> I think that's part of their greatness is that they can see that down the road. They're like, I'm not going to give him all my secrets, just enough to get him somewhere else. And then I'll beat his brains out when he's there. Uh, the other team I want to touch on real quick, Louisville. I think in our previous conversations, you were a little bit more tepid on Louisville than I was. And, and certainly last, uh, just uh, this weekend, they lose to Miami, 78 to 72. A Miami team that had like seven guys. I mean, they did not. They've have had seven players. guys for the last two years. I mean, I feel so <laughs> bad for Jim Laranega. He's had no bodies and no depth, but uh, sorry, continue. Andy. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no. Miami uh, shot 49% in that game. Isaiah Wong scores 30. Uh, Louisville uh, only gets 10 points from David Johnson in his last two games. He's kind of struggled. Carly Jones played well in that game, 25, but Louisville three of 20 on three pointers in that game. 
Uh, did Louisville get exposed a little bit, or is that just sort of them coming back to the, the pack of what we expected of them this season? I mean, I hate to say that this is entirely what I expected, but yeah, I mean, when you don't have a reliable interior option, and obviously, you know, you can you can tell my North Carolina bias and having watched so much UNC basketball because the post John Swafford has taught you well (laughs) he's got that ACC bias um but you know this is sort of what you can expect I think for a team that that doesn't have that interior presence and you know the big question to me is you know where is Sam Williamson you know he came in last year and early on had some flashes um six seven guy looked like he could be a stretchy sort of four-man versatile perimeter guy um being able to hang inside a little bit there were talks about that and he hasn't been able to do that either, but um, let me say this for Chris Mack. Carl Jones is a great player, but Carl Jones cannot be your only great player week in and week out. The fact that David Johnson is, is slumping a little bit. You mentioned that um, again, this wasn't his great game. Second, second game in a row that he's struggled a little bit. Um, it does take excellence from both of those backcourt guys for Louisville to be able to, hang I think with some of the better teams in the conference especially without having that consistent interior presence it would be a lot different if someone like a Sam Williamson was hitting if uh if Aiden I'm gonna butcher his last name but Aiden Iggen um if any of these guys could get something else going but right now it's very much a two-man show and one one half that two-man show doesn't show up you see the sort of problems that Louisville had and and again you know Miami deserves credit too. You know, we can't just take away from Louisville. Isaiah Wong is playing like a man possessed. You know, he is, he is getting buckets. Uh, I, what is he in the conference right now in terms of scoring? He's fifth in the conference in scoring 17.6 points per game. Um, Carly Jones obviously is fourth in the conference, 18 points per game, but um, l- l- let's not sleep on what, what we're, let's not sleep on what Miami has been able to do at the same time, because uh, without Chris likes without Cameron McGusty, they're still being competitive. They're still playing hard. Larinag is a great coach, but I, I am so surprised by the effort, the sheer will that some of these Miami players are showing. Um, and Wong obviously is sort of the best of the bunch right now. But uh, this is the reason I had reservations about Louisville. I think they've sort of been confirmed now. And unless David Johnson's able to get this right quickly, I, I think I see a situation where the Cardinals continue to struggle. Well, Louisville has an interesting game tonight. We're recording this on a Monday. Uh, they play Florida State tonight. We try to avoid the days when there's a game, but when they do a big Monday game, can't avoid it. So uh, I want to pose this question to you. Who has the most interesting or the toughest week of these three teams I've been mentioned? Louisville plays Florida State and Duke. Duke plays at Pitt and at Louisville, and Florida State plays at Louisville and then hosts Clemson. I think that it's Florida State. I mean, you're you're talking about I know Clemson just got ramshacked, but this is still a really good defensive team. We don't know what the deal is with Scotty Barnes. Um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Raycon Gray played great for Florida State against UNC. And UNC doesn't have the shooters that some of those other teams have. You know, Clemson has the potential to get hot. Louisville has the potential to get hot. So um I think this is a week and we're gonna learn a lot about some of these teams, especially Florida State and Clemson. Um, you know. Both of those teams have a lot to prove right now for very different reasons. Um, but I think this is sort of a week when we're going to sort of learn the direction that both of those teams are taking. I would guess that for Florida State, the trajectory keeps going upward. For Clemson, you sort of hope that you can uh, bell curve it a little bit and get, get going the right way. All right. Before we go today, I want to talk about your A1 story on The Athletic today. Uh, very interesting, fun story. Timely with the inauguration this week. Uh, this was about the time that Barack Obama played a pickup game at UNC. This is in 2008 in April. He is still candidate 
Obama back then. Uh, he's still trying to get the nomination. It's pretty clear he was going to at that point. I think I was going back to look the timing of when it was became clear he was going to get it. So he gave a, a speech the previous day at North Carolina, and then the next morning uh, had tried to, to set up a pickup game. Uh, explain the story a little bit. Tease the story a little bit so the the readers can or listeners can go over there and read it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with the inauguration this week, we just really felt that it was a, an appropriate time to look back and. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that a lot of people can sort of see from a distance is, um, you know, UNC and Barack Obama over the years have had, you know, their fair share of interactions. You know, UNC went to the White House in 2009 after it won the national championship. Um, obviously, Barack Obama was at Cameron Indoor a couple of days or not a couple of days ago, a couple of years ago for the Duke Cameron game, the Zion shoe game. Um but a lot of people don't sort of know the origins of that. And it really does go back to this pickup game where um, then Senator Obama gives a rally in the Smith Center. And, you know, basically all the guys are in attendance. They love what they hear. They're, they're quote, blown away was what I was told when I was going through the reporting process. And, and then the rally ends and they sort of go their separate ways and, you know, to the library, the dining hall, whatever. And a couple of hours later, you know, it gets into the nighttime. They get a text. You know, there's an opportunity tomorrow at 7 a.m. Obama wants to play pickup. You in. And uh, can you just imagine getting that text? Like what, what that must be like, even not knowing what he would go on to become that like. I think it would be fake. I'd be like, <laughs> right. OK, my, my friends got a hold of my number and they're, you know, messing around with me here. Like, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like this is real. Right. It seems it seems too good to be true. But um, yeah, you know, I, I just thought it was really interesting looking at how that came to be. And then uh, obviously in the story, many more details about the game, how it sort of uh, built this long lasting bond between Obama and, and North Carolina. And yeah, it was just uh, I think a lot of times when we think about the presidency and we think about, you know, obviously there's so much going on in our country right now, but um, just to be able to, to take it back a little bit and, and localize it and, and make it a smaller issue. Um, this was such an important moment for a lot of the guys on that team. And, um, you know, guys that are still visible, you know, Tyler Hansborough, Wayne Ellington, Danny Green, you know, all of them said we didn't realize at the time how consequential that moment was going to be. But to hear a black man speaking to a primarily black team and on the precipice of becoming the first black president, um, until President Obama went on to do all the things that he did and to become the person that he was, they couldn't fully appreciate how cool and unique and, and sort of uh, one of a kind that moment was. And so hearing their take on it all these years later was was really interesting and a lot of fun. And uh, there's certainly some some great stories that came out of it, too. That's thir almost 13 years ago. I can tell because I looked at the picture and I saw the size of the shorts of the players. Right. Like, oh, this, this was a different time in fashion here. Could you, what was your takeaway from uh, the players that you talked to about how good Obama was at basketball? We've all seen him shooting. He's a lefty doing his little jump shots and stuff like that. But like when you get, into, it's not like you're going out there just like shooting horse with this guy. You're, you're playing a pickup game with the presumptive uh, nominee for the, the Democrats in 2008. Like, do you play hard against this guy? Do you kind of like ease up on him? Is it, is it like one, like you always see those videos of Vladimir Putin playing hockey and it's like, he scored 10 goals. And they're like, obviously going at half speed this entire time and like applauding him. Cause you know, they, 
they don't want to get like cyanided in their sleep or something like that. But what do you do with Obama? Do you actually play hard or do you just like, you know, give him the lane for a layup? Yeah, I think uh, it's not quite as dire as it would be with Putin in hockey. But uh, yeah, yeah, I I think those are wise decisions by those Russians that they're letting. Yeah, you let let him get his goals. But uh, no, I mean, I think it was a combination of the two. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes that didn't make it into the story was from Tyler Hansborough, actually. And he was telling me, you know, when I first reached out to him and said, you know, can we chat for this story? Tyler said that he went back and he was doing some research about that game and trying to look at some old pictures. And he found a picture online of himself, like in midair, swatting at one of Obama's shots. And uh, he said, you know, as funny as it looks like I'm about to annihilate it, I actually didn't make that. I didn't make that block. Obama got the shot off on me. He got the floater. He missed. Um, but Hansborough said, you know, in typical Hansborough fashion, uh, I, I like that it looks that way. I like that it looks like I'm blocking his shot. So I think a couple of guys went hard. I think, you know, someone like Ty Lawson didn't really need to prove himself. But uh, yeah, certainly there were guys. And, and as you read in the story, there's a certain instance of that. But a um, couple of guys were not holding back. Didn't matter uh, who or, or what Obama was going to go on to become. Yeah, the Jack Wooten's part of that story is worth it just right there to see it. I think what Obama needed to do is he needed to be like, anybody who blocks my shot like can get something like that. So like everybody on the team is going to try to block it. So he'll he'll pump fake it and then just like dish it down low for an easy assist. That would have been the crafty way to do things. Obama allegedly is a very good setup man. I heard that he had a couple of assists, uh, sees the court very well, good angles. He's got a, He's got some good court vision. Well, I, I checked the timing of that. He went on to win the North Carolina primary in early May. So clearly uh, his speech there and his basketball playing, uh, pretty good idea in, in North Carolina if you're going to cater to the basketball crowd. I think that's a way to win win the uh, votes from that state. I think there was a reason he was playing in North Carolina and, and Indiana as well. But, um, you know, I, if anyone's going to go read the story, I highly recommend that, um, you know, today's we're recording this on Monday. We're recording this on MLK Junior Day. Um Go back and, and YouTube Obama's speech from that day, uh, from April 28, 2008. It is, um, I, I find it to be shockingly interesting, um, shockingly accurate still for our point in history. And, and really, there's no better time than MLK Day to go read it and um, to hear about Obama's vision of unity from back then. It, it still rings true. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why he was able to make such an impact on the guys. Um, what they heard in the rally was exactly the same as the person they got to meet the next morning. Well, that's the perfect way to end this show. Not going to get more poignant than that. So, Brendan, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, we're going to do this again next week on Monday. I think we're going to shoot for Mondays to get this thing out. We'll recap the weekend. We'll set up the week ahead in ACC basketball. Uh, go rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your pods. Uh, it really helps us get the word out. Subscribe to The Athletic. Go read that Barack Obama story. It's well worth uh, the price of admission to do that. You can listen to this podcast ad-free if you're a subscriber to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash pod. Uh, give us a follow on Twitter. We are always tweeting our thoughts about games and stuff like that. I'm at Andy Bitter VT. He's at Brendan R. Marks. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week and uh, recap a bit more ACC basketball. Thanks for listening.